Hey there. Before we get started, wanted to let you know that this conversation that I had with Andy Squires is the first one that I recorded the video as well as the audio. So if you're more of a visual person, you can go to thingsaboutthings.com and then click on the watch button and that will send you over to my YouTube page and you can watch the conversation if you'd rather do that instead of listen. All right, here we go. Hello, wonderful people. This is Jason English with Things About Things, simplifying concepts without sacrificing depth. And I am doing my first ever video podcast with my friend Andy Squires. Hey, Andy. Uh, Andy is my friend. We've been friends, I don't know, 10 plus years. I remember I, I attend, I was part of a wedding. Yeah. You did the music and I just went, I got to know that guy. Mm-hmm. And then we've never even lived in the same place. And so I don't know how and why, but we just sort of keep being friends. Yeah. So we, we met at a wedding and then you ended up doing my daughter's wedding. You, you yeah. were the officiant at Savannah and Jamin's wedding. I remember it like it was yesterday. That was one of my favorite <laughs> ones ever. It was, it was a outside. Good one. Oh, so good. In the trees. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, um, we're going to talk about, this phrase touching the nerve with yeah. so a little bit of context for, for people that don't know Andy, Andy is musician songwriter. And so touching the nerve kind of within the context of music, but I think people, even if they're not musicians, not songwriters, if they're writers of any kind or creators yeah. of any kind mm-hmm. um, might resonate with them. So let's start with this phrase, touching the nerve. What does that phrase mean? <clears throat> well, let me let me just give a little context of 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 maybe uh the way I think about my my vocational calling. Uh-huh. So there's a guy I'm sure you, many of your listeners will will know there's there's a guy named um Wendell Berry. He's a writer, farmer, poet, you know, novelist. He's a, he's just a great thinker, but he talks I I heard him say one time that the the place that you feel anxious or or anguish is really the invitation from the spirit into your real work. And uh, I I've been writing. I, I was just talking to my wife the other day. I've been I've been faithfully at the discipline of songwriting for going on three decades now. So almost thirty years. And in 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 that songwriting journey, I was steeped in church music and in, in quote unquote Christian music and doing doing all kinds of stuff surrounding music that would be played out in a, a church setting specifically around worship. And um, doing that, learning how to do that early on was just about the nuts and bolts of songwriting. And then obviously in the context of that space. Singing together with a group. Singing in a congregational setting dabbling i would dabble a little bit in like singer songwriter stuff but mainly in the worship setting uh but maybe 15 years ago i i i began having 
um, what I would call theological changes within myself. So maybe the way I thought about and related to God. And, and what was so fascinating about that is once that change began to happen, my philosophical approach to art changed. And maybe where the main idea in more of the liturgical stuff that I was writing, my main value would be usefulness or maybe something along the line of utilitarian. And, and so, and there, there really is aspects of that that are important. But what I was really feeling within myself was that I wasn't saying the things that I really wanted to say. I, I, found, I found words and melodies within myself that I would go to write and I would feel a lack of permission from the space that I knew that place that song would be sung in. Where's so, the lack of permission? Come, where does that come from? Was this real, imaginary? Who 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 did you not have permission from? Uh, I I guess there are I I guess in any tribe there are unspoken yeah value systems right right whether we've are ever articulated those in our minds we know they exist mm -hmm. maybe we've witnessed somebody attempt something new or different outside and then they're out of, of the tribe yeah collective norm yeah. and they're Either they're reprimanded, they're they're put aside, they're talked to, they're rebuked, or they're just you know exiled. Or just no microphone anymore. Yeah, so to speak. <laughs> right. So because because honestly, art is inherently or should be in my view, not risk averse. So so artists, one of their their main jobs is to think ahead, think ahead of time. Look into the future, you know, maybe call things out that are wrong, that nobody's seeing. Yeah. You know, there's all kinds of ways of doing that. So I think where I started feeling the, the cramp from my particular tribe was that I was not even wanting to be prophetic and call out, you know, like the sin of my forefathers. I was just wanting to tell a story. Like, even if it was just my own story. And there was no space for that within that context. So what I started doing was I started saying, I started giving myself permission. And I said to myself on a number of occasions, it's okay if nobody likes what you're doing. It's okay if you're rejected for what you're doing. And the, the most important value is that you like what you're doing. And what's so fascinating, for me at least, in my quote-unquote career as a, a, a performing artist, when I did that was the very first time I ever achieved any kind of like monetary success, or not, not even monetary, but just a little bit of acclaim for for the work that I produced, right? Um, so back to your original question about touching the nerve. What I discovered was I had shut down my nerve for years or my instincts that were telling me when something was beautiful rather than not beautiful. Mm. 
And once I began to say words or put words in an order that began to reveal something intriguing, compelling, maybe even shocking at times, depending on the listener, that that, is, that was releasing beauty into spaces. And that's, that's to me, touch, what touching the nerve looks like. You know, it's, it's sharing something new. I mean, in art, there are really only a few main themes, you know, life, death, love, when there's, there could be like sub themes beneath love, like sex, family, friendship, you know, all, all of the love themes. So like life, death, love, and, oh, and loss, you know, like those themes, they've been written about thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of times by all kinds of writers and visual artists alike. So the work of the artist is to, it's not like we're looking for new themes. It's, it's that we're looking for ways, new ways of talking about old themes. Mm -hmm. The human condition is the same across the ages. And each genera generation is relating to those pressures differently. So we have to find language that communicates our collective angst. And then to sing about those things or talk about those things or perform those things in a way that releases grace into the consumer. Consumer is a terrible word. I don't Listener, yeah, the, appreciator yeah, of the art. The audience, yeah. Do you think that religion was in any way suppressing not just you, but the other Andes? Yes. Yes. So you had to sort of transcend something in order to take a chance. Yes. It is a double-edged sword because my religion has has been such a wellspring of life for me. And and that that story that I belong to is much bigger than my personal experience. Yeah, yeah. So what I've tried to do is I've tried to not reject the gatekeepers of my tribe and I, and I've tried to maybe like well maybe become a gatekeeper you know become a permission giver with within my within the family that marked me you know i i always think about you know stanley hauerwas would say people would ask him all the time you know he he was born and raised a methodist and and his his theology the work of his 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 philosophical work that he did led him to being in constant tension with his with his family church with his methodism right and so people would ask him all the time why don't you leave go find somebody somewhere that accepts you and his answer was always these are the people that marked me i can't leave the people that marked me you know and that, that's not to say that we, we never find ourselves in situations that we shouldn't leave. Yeah, or, yeah toxic stuff. You know, yeah, yeah but, but I love that idea of rather than abandoning these folks that have caused you great consternation, that you kind of like maybe depart for a season and you go and do your work in a place that will let you do your work. And then you kind of like 
swing back around and you reveal to them. Because then you're one of them and they they might actually listen if since you're one of them too. Yeah. And I I think in things, a lot of times I think in terms of Venn diagrams, it's just sort of what my brain does. Yeah. And I think that there is value to saying with any system, organization, faith community to say, we want to preserve this and continue to hand it down one generation after the next. So it's not about your original story. We have to have some stories that just are stories. Yeah. So it's good. There's like the, that one circle is the stories that need to be continued, but then there's like, well, what about my own narrative? And what about these things that are bubbling up in me that are for lack of a better word, unique? Yeah. Where should they overlap? Okay. There's some things, maybe they're not for a corporate context. Yeah. But not everything in a corporate context has to just be about one generation passing down the exact same thing. What about something new Yeah. at the same time? And so there's that overlap. And I guess every person needs to figure out where those overlap and what parts don't as well. But when I hear the phrase touching the nerve, I think of something that is disruptive Mm. that you deep, deep down your true self knows that it's true and has to be exposed, but you don't like it when you hear it or a part of you doesn't like it when you hear it. You're like, I want to reject that because it makes me uncomfortable, but it makes me uncomfortable because I know it's actually the way things really are. Mm -hmm. And so within the context of, you know, you started out with you're singing songs that are one generation to the next and Mm -hmm. passing down the truths of that narrative, then you have like, well, I, I've decided I, I really like the way that these words are combined. Yeah. And it's, and it feels true. Yeah. How do you know when you've touched the nerve is one question, but also more specifically, how do you know when you've touched the nerve that still is true within that culture and isn't a different narrative altogether that actually is a false thing? Yeah, man, that that's a great question. Uh, th- there's an author. Her name is Marilyn Robinson. Uh, she said this. I heard her say this one time. She said, I don't trust anything I write until it surprises me. And I thought, wow, that is such a fascinating way to think about it. And I, this isn't, this isn't so much, this wouldn't have been true early on in my learning how to be a writer. But definitely later on, when when I shock myself with a new angle of how to view something or or, or a way or a way to say something, uh, that's that's when I know. Well, I'll be personally excited to perform the song, and and uh, I, you know it's all risky. And that's why I work with other talented people around me. You know, it's like every writer needs an editor and and every every songwriter needs a producer. And I've got I've got somebody I work with that I trust who can tell me when I'm just full of shit or whatever. You know, it's like you have to have that person because artists are typically, you know, they're hyper focused on their own world and sometimes do not realize how they're coming across. Okay. So filters are really important. You know, bouncing your ideas up against uh, uh, objective ear, or somewhat objective ear. Um, 
but in, but in in with regards to telling the truth and how how truth can fit into a collective it's it's interesting when i i i i am really a niche ar artist in that i am clearly christian in my my affirmations you can hear that in my music but it's not evangelical. I, I haven't set out to create art for the sake of persuading anybody of anything. The right. only reason why God shows up in my music is because I'm interested in, in that idea. And there's some kind of relationship that's happening between me and my life of faith and the people that are in my life. So there's a struggle around that. There's there's actual things that happen that I like to write about. And what's so so I, I'm a niche artist in that I am emphatically Christian, but but in the in the world of contemporary Christian music, there's not really much of a space for me because I tend to talk specifically about pain. Yeah. You know, so I I don't a lot of my, I mean, I don't want to spend all this time talking about a critique of contemporary Christian music, but just for the sake of this conversation, and this is low hanging fruit, so forgive me, but a fair critique without being cruel, I think we could say about Christian music in general, they use kind of sweeping common metaphors to describe difficulties. So yeah. You could hear about the storms or the valleys or, you know. Abstract. Yes. Abstract suffering. Yes. That resolves in three minutes. Right. And and I don't want to completely say that's not allowable because I know of artists who do it well. Like mm -hmm. I, I Brittany Howard, the Alabama Shakes, you know, their their initial big hit. Uh, was was called Hold On. And I always point to that song because that was like a three and a half minute song that was, it used generalities, but the way those generalizations were performed elevated those lyrics to a place that, hmm. I mean, the music was just otherworldly, right? But I think that Christian music fails to touch the universal nerve because it only speaks in generalizations for the most part. Mm. And I personally love the craft of writing or songwriting. And I think if you're going to really be an artisan and if you're really going to do that well, you cannot be afraid of telling your own story or somebody else's story really well. And sometimes stories in real life do not have a resolution. They do not resolve. So I like to hear writers not resolve everything all of the time. And so I, I can't remember the original question, but... It's great though. I'm learning a lot. <laughs> Uh, that's great. Uh, questions are just there to get you. Yeah. You start flowing yeah. anyway. <laughs> Can you remember one of the first times, if not the first time that you went, oh man, I think I just hit something. I think I just wrote something. Yeah. Yeah. So 2003 was a good year for me. 
Uh, I so in 2003, I would have been turning 30 years old. So 30, I'm I'm 47 now, and 30 was a real turning point for me. Uh, I read a book by Brennan Manning called The Ragamuffin Gospel, and it it blew my mind. And it and it was an invitation to me. It was yeah. uh, it was uh, an invitation to go to places that I had never been before, theologically and artistically. So around that time, I wrote a little record called "Here Comes the Devastation," and the friend who produced that record for me, it was his first record that he ever produced, and we did it in a basement on a little Yamaha. 16 track hard disk recorder and it is just still to this day the songwriting is i wouldn't say it was sublime but i would say it was really good and i remember that season of writing going i catching a stride i had never caught before and it was like the beginning of my awakening my awakening took maybe a decade but that was really the beginning for me and uh from 2003 to 2009 there was a bunch of stuff that happened in my life but when i finally landed in 2009 in early 2010 that it was like game over for me i was fully fully sold out on this idea that I was going to say whatever I wanted the way I wanted to say it and to hell with anybody that didn't like the way I was saying it. And that's right around when I met you eight, nine or 10. Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. That's so right. Just, I know that. But uh, instead of comparing, I like how you still are acknowledging how good the lyrics were instead of just going, Oh, that was so 20 years ago. It was crap. The context in your life yeah. is key there. Because yeah. you, you could argue that that was more important because you had to break through a ceiling and didn't even yeah. know if it, if it was possible or if anyone was going to approve of you. Or now you're like, oh, I've got this space and people know this about me, so I'm going to really yeah. push the limits. But you were like, am I going to be rejected here? Am I? Is this okay to use the word devastation? Is this okay yeah. to, to say some of these things and still feel accepted? Yeah, and it's it, what's really interesting. I I'm my my theological bent is is I'm I'm charismatic Pentecostal. So that was always my world. And one of the very interesting things about Pentecostal people is they are much more able to take into themselves risk, okay? And so what I discovered was with my Pentecostal friends I could do things musically and they would allow me to go places lyrically that my Baptist friends would never let me their body and, 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 and like hey. be demonstrative in their worship with phrases that you would. Hey, go back. Cause when you said you were your yeah. Baptist friends, the screen, yeah. the screen froze. Yeah. So, well, I, some of your Baptist friends. Yeah. So I was, I was just, I was just saying it was so interesting to me that where where a lot of my gifting was fostered and blessed was in the charismatic Pentecostal church. Right. And I, I find that fascinating because charismatic Pentecostal people are less risk averse than more conservative 
Baptist folks mm-hmm. and folks of that ilk. So, so I could sing things within my little Pentecostal church and they would be like, I mean, not always, obviously this is an awkward relationship at times, but there would be these times where I would sing something out that I thought, oh, I will never get away with this in church. And it was like, the heavens opened, the spirit descended, and it was party time. You know, like I experienced that enough times that it just, it spurred me on to go after those things, you know. But of course, there were limits. And then, you know, I had to even break free from all of that. But I, I do want to acknowledge that, that there, it wasn't always a uh, negative relationship. There were a sure. lot of, a lot of good things that were involved with that. Well, you know, this this entire conversation makes me think of one of my favorite moments in the Gospels. Jesus is teaching, and he finishes teaching, and the crowd says, I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, we've never heard anybody teach like this before. Yeah. He's nothing like our teachers of the law and the scribes yeah. and these people that are continuing one generation to the next. And anyone who has experience in church, especially if they grew up in church, they might have heard the teachers of the law or scribes as like, in, I don't know, vacation Bible school. And you go, boo, like Pharisees. Yeah. But I think yeah. it's, it's good to acknowledge that they were preserving. The yes. And don't yeah. just make them seem like these horrible people. And that Jesus was the kind of teacher that in a, in a culture where the role of the rabbi was to regurgitate what the rabbi before them said, so that you continue the tradition. That's not a bad thing. Right. And so if you ask someone, well, what's your view on this? And they go, well, this is the tradition. This is what the tradition says. So for the, for him to have said something else was like, wait a second. That's not, I didn't think that that's what rabbis were supposed to do. They weren't just supposed to say, this is what our tradition tells us. And had to have touched the nerve, right? Had to have been like, that's not, oh no. Well, that feels right though. You know, <laughs> kind of well, like that moment. Like, and then of course they killed him, but that's another point. But <laughs> well, I think, I think it should be considered. I mean, I think, yeah, I yeah, think yeah. that that's, if you're, if you're going to have a kingdom of God mindset and mm-hmm. in your whole, your whole concept of doing something faithfully is so that you can become famous or well-known, then you're probably not thinking about this correctly. No, it's you know? not, that's not the narrative of Christ, is it? No, but what's interesting about this story that you've just told, and I'm, I'm just thinking of it as you're talking, it's like, Jesus was the king of this. He said, oh, you've heard it said, but I tell that's you. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's like, when I think of the, the, if I was to put it in a nutshell of what a songwriter is supposed to do, they're, they're literally going, no, metaphorically, they're saying, you've heard it said, but here, yeah. let me reveal another aspect of God to you. That's right? it. You know? And I think that, well, I'll just say for me, my desire is I want to be that kind of person. Amen. Not just in, in, in no, in no way am I trying to um, put, bring Jesus down or anything, but yeah. I don't just want to regurgitate those words. Yeah. I want to be the kind of person that that's like, you've heard it been said, but here's a whole nother way of thinking about it. So I yeah. think that the followers of Jesus wouldn't just say the words of Jesus. The followers of Jesus would be like Jesus so that we would be like, you've heard it been said this. I, I want to say something new here, man, but you have to have the, you have to have the tradition in order to be able to have these moments of transcending it. Right. 
Absolutely. So well, he said stuff that was like, whoa, we've never heard that. And now here we are a couple thousand years later saying that's the tradition. It wasn't the tradition when he said it. Man, and so, so there are moments that you're you're writing something down that, you know, maybe not at maybe you're not changing the world and as massive of a way of Jesus of Nazareth did, but like, yeah. but you, but you, maybe you're changing the world when you write that, you scribble that thing in your journal and then you, you go, what if I did it in G or I don't know. And then you yeah. just, and then you said it and then it enters the world now. Yeah. And it's like, you've heard it been said this and I have something new and it's still the tradition of Jesus being like that in the world. Well, I would. I want to give a really practical example of what you've just said. Mm-hmm. So I have a song. It's called Before You, God. And what I do in this song is I take really well-known parables that are given in the New Testament, and I flip them on their head. So, for instance, in this song, uh, I I take the parable of the lost sheep and the good shepherd where Jesus talks about the one being lost out on the mountainside and how he leaves the 99 to go after the one. But I was reading the text one day and I, I, I was at the time surrounded by folks that were losing faith left and right. And honestly, A lot of them had really good reasons. So I wasn't even begrudging the fact, but I was just kind of in a moment where I was like, God, I was feeling like, God, I, I feel like you're lost. And, and I read that text and I saw that Jesus wasn't the good shepherd at that moment. He was the, he was the lamb lost out on the mountain. And I was in, in my song, I'm telling him, I'm going to come and get you. You know, I just so much flipped, creative I just freedom flipped, there. Yeah, I flipped the text and like it might not be a primary interpretation, but it's still an interpretation worth giving. Yes, and the and the the genre of that teaching is a story form that is meant to allow those creative so maybe some other genres in scripture like you, we're not going to change literal history with right. like in this year this happened and this number of people were there. We don't change you know, how many tribes there were or something like that, you know, but it, it's, it's told in this, in this parable. So what's, what's been fascinating is that as that song has made it out, it's, it's way out into the world. It is very, very difficult for folks who think about scriptures one exact way yeah. to receive something like that. And I, I remember I, I, I did a show in Wake Forest and a really well-meaning, sincere person came up to me and they really, really were concerned and they really wanted to take me to task over this song. And, and it was interesting because I the only thing that I could really think to say to them was that, you know, language and conversation still happens today because not everything has been settled. Mm. Life is so complex that the history of humanity has not arrived at this place where everything has been determined and we're all living upon settled issues. Like, I mean, there's a few settled issues like, 
If you ask me if I believed in, in the law of gravity and that I lived my life around the limitations of that, I would say, yes, I, I, I agree. And I'm not one of these guys that says that, that there, there is nothing that can be known. I am not one of those guys at all. To, to me, that's just a weird world to live in. Like, there is a basis for knowing things. But I would say this, that there's a whole lot of Jesus and the scriptures that is still up for discussion. And that's what theology is. And that's what poetry is. And that's what Art we're in general. for. Yes. This is why we are depending on songwriters and artists. Like, like in some ways, artists are just as important to theology and philosophy as theologians and philosophers are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, regardless of someone's take, because some people listen and, you know, might have different views on who Jesus is and all that. But just for those that have the premise of believing Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is God in the form of a human, like for those that are listening that believe that. The one with all knowledge, even though I guess there's a passage that says, you know, kind of emptied himself too, but he could have just come and said, okay, get out your pen and paper. I'm going to teach you everything. Chapter one, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Yeah. This, this is the deal with the angels. This is the deal, yeah. you know, and, and instead he told stories and that's a form of art. And that invites, it invites us into process that. I remember in, in seminary, I took a homiletics class and there was this old man and he used to really, when we do our practice sermons, he was just really let us have it. And uh, at that point, you know, I guess I was 21 years old and I was, I really was all about expository preaching and thought that that was just the only way you were supposed to do it. But it's only because that's what someone told me when I was in college. Right. And he said, whenever you're preaching, which I guess we could apply to any art form too, um, be careful that you don't, tell too many stories lest you simply be known as a storyteller and i i was thinking like amen because i was all about expository and he goes unless you want to be a teacher like jesus Mm. (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) and i was just like oh my gosh so i think what we have a couple thousand years later within the christian tradition is um freeze those words, interpret them to the best of your ability and just say that same thing over and over and over. Yeah. But inviting into, I mean, uh, the lost coin parable, the woman who loses a coin, it invites you into a million different versions of what the heck he's talking about. And that's because he's a good teacher. Yeah. The best teachers that one of my professors said to me, uh, good teachers, the, the best teachers say less and less and more and more people talk about it. Mm. And I think I put, I put songs in that category or poems in that category or yeah. a painting in that category, probably more than a 45 minute lecture called a sermon. Mm. Although I personally try to approach teaching in a more artistic form. I think, yeah. it, you know, <clears throat> you listen to this song and it's three minutes. Well, in actuality, it's probably only one minute of words yeah 
And then it's like, analyze and analyze. And maybe he meant this. And for me, it's like my favorite part sometimes is some random little drum thing that happens. that isn't even, you know, and why is that? It speaks to me. Yeah. And, you know, touches a nerve sometimes, sometimes in ways that are make me feel hopeful and sometimes in ways that disrupt me in all the best ways. But I'm glad that some music exists that doesn't touch the nerve because it keeps me steady at times when I want to be steady. Yeah. And I put you, you, you know, your music, I put in the category of like, you know, you ever sit down and you want to watch something on Netflix and you scroll through and you're like, that, that movie's going to be amazing, but I'm just not ready to watch that one right now. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Because of the drama of it or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And it's like, there are moments that I'm like, I need some Andy Squires music. And then there's yeah. days that I'm like, I can't, I can't have any oh, music today. And without then, a doubt. But that's genre. Yeah. And that matters. If it was only, if every song that I ever listened to was just like, there's a storm, but everything's fine. It would be like, no life. So boring. But man, yeah. some days I just want in three minutes to be like, and hallelujah, everything's okay. And or, I'm glad or, those exist. Right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's like, a- yeah, the, it's like there's, well, honestly, that's how I feel about the Bible. Like mm-hmm. some people say you need to read the Bible every day. And I'm like, well, I can't take the Bible seriously and read it every day, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I get it. I mean, I know that's going to sound like heresy to some people, but I'm like, it it undoes me. So when I read it, I have to like, I have to do it in digestive bits because I, I'm, it's, it takes me over, you know, sometimes I just, I need to read a book of poetry or even just a, a story by somebody, you know? Yeah. yeah. There's so much full, there's so much in the Bible that is, that touches the nerve that can be like upsetting. No. For sure. Right? And instead of just like, oh, just read a psalm a day. And it's like, okay, you're going to hit some of them and you're going to be like, I'm just as pissed as the psalmist now. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> instead yeah. of like, oh, that was nice. You know, yeah. sometimes it's not nice. And that's, yeah, that's what makes it so good. Right. It's not always nice, but man, I'm so glad that it's also nice. And, you know, that this being a follower of Jesus, mm. uh, I'm so glad he came back to life. Hmm. because you know even if he i used to think well if he didn't come back to life then the whole story is nonsense and i actually don't think that anymore i -hmm. think that a human who lays himself down in love is a beautiful story and if he would have just died yeah what a beautiful story but i am so glad that that story didn't end that way but i can't dismiss the story if it would have just ended that way either but some days i some days i need to read that the resurrection story <laughs> yeah you know I mean? amen and then amen. sometimes i'm like you know what though just dying for your friends is is enough yeah but yeah. Some, i can't handle that all every day <laughs> well you know it's it's so funny because my most popular song i mean my favorite songs are my saddest songs okay that that those are the those are the ones that really get me going all but right. but that's not my most my most listened to songs are songs like cherry blossoms and you bring the morning. It's like, those are the, those are the ones that, you know, this is what I'm learning as I get older is that I don't have to be judgmental and critical too hard over folks that are not writing like me. You know, it's like, it's like, do I want to watch a Hallmark movie every night of the week? You know, back to your Netflix. Only during Christmas time. Only during Christmas. Like, man, but yeah. (laughs) On, at Christmas, I'm watching one. Yeah. I'm watching one with the kids, and it's gonna be great. Yeah, you know, 
So, and they're going to save the Christmas tree farm and every the bed and breakfast is going to stay in business and everything's yes. Right. Yes. Right. I need that occasionally, yeah. right? And so I've got my Hallmark movie versions of songs, you know, and, and there's no shame in that. I, I think that we got to have, if we're going to have a robust discussion about art, mm-hmm. we've got to include, you know, we want to be, we want, we want room for the hard hitting stuff and we want, we want re- room for the resolve too, you know? Yeah. And so it's, you're, you're attempting to hit a full spectrum of emotion as best you can. I yeah. guess the question then is, will people like it? Will they resonate yeah. with it? And then yeah. what place does it have in a corporate setting singing all together at the same time, or at least, yeah. at least listening together at the same time? Um, those are all very important questions. Let's talk about a couple of them in particular, like some lyrics. Yeah. The one that I'm thinking of right now is the dead horse. Uh, this is my, this is my miscarriage, secret miscarriage. This is my public divorce. Yeah. There are a few phrases like that, that I'm like, okay, that's poetry in my mind. I mean, I know it's a song, but that's a poem that you wrote mm-hmm. that is devastatingly true. And I don't even know why I don't even like you wrote it. Maybe you didn't even understand it when you wrote it. Like maybe you processed it even more, or maybe you completely knew what all those symbols meant at the time. But when I hear it initially, I can't instantly understand all of the complexity of what you meant, but yet my spirit or my heart or whatever, something in me goes, yep. Um, Will you talk about that phrase and feel free to talk about some other phrases too, but that's the one that came to my mind. So, so the song you're referring to is called dead horse and the, the, the particular line that you're talking about goes, here's my secret miscarriage. Here's my public divorce. Nobody taught me to let go. So I learned how to beat a dead horse. Yeah. Now all of my altars are empty. All of my altars are empty. Except for this lone hallelujah. The heat of your fire is just a memory now. But nothing is wasted with you. So when I wrote this song, this is this is kind of like a middle-aged love song to God is what this is. So, so when I was in my early 20s, I had a lot more energy. I had a lot more belief. I had a lot more zeal. And, and I was in the church. And so around that time, it was like, it's like if you were really devoted for God, you, you did things. You know, you sang loud. You prayed a lot. You read your Bible every day. You went on missions trips. You went to the youth rallies, right? You know the, you know the thing, right? And... <clears throat> I have lived enough life now where all of those initial faith movements have not been enough to sustain me in a life of faith. If I plan to live to be 90 years old, I've got to have a little more than that. But what's so interesting to me is how much guilt I felt that I didn't care about jumping up and down in worship anymore, or I didn't care about going to some revival meeting somewhere or I didn't care about the passion conference, or I didn't care. You know, it's like, there's all these things that you're trying to carry in your twenties that somebody somewhere told you was really important. And then your, and then your regular life is happening to you and you feel like a less spiritual person because you don't care about any of that stuff. And then you, and then you get to, to the age where enough people in your life die, they pass away, even though you've prayed prayers of healing and you've prayed, you've asked God for things that haven't, you know, been answered. So, which calls into question, what is prayer? Oh, yeah. You've got all these things swirling around in your life. 
And at the end of that, you go, do I still believe in God? Do I still, can I shake him or not? Can I, can I just head on over into atheism? Or, or what is it? What is this relationship? What is it that we're doing here? Because God, I feel like you're letting me down all the time and I'm letting you. It's like, this is like this, you know, you got mutual admiration societies. This is like, my relationship with God is more like this standoffishness. Like, I don't know what to do with you and you don't know what to do with me. So when I wrote that lyric, here is my secret miscarriage, that was more of an actual practical thing where I had heard enough stories from folks from my Cherry Blossoms record of how that album actually helped get them through the loss of a child. Like whether it was a miscarriage or, you know, whether they lost a child, you know, early on out of, out of the womb. And I kept hearing the story from folks how they would they would enter into a season of grief from the loss of a child and they would go to their, their houses of worship. And all the songs that were coming at them were songs of faith, victory, and breakthrough. So all, all the language was like, you know what? You know why you're in the position you are? It's because you just don't have enough faith. Do you know why you, you, you haven't gotten the breakthrough? Because you haven't believed well enough yet. And, and those folks are not going to sit around listening to a message like that. I mean, that, 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 so that would, wounding, wounding. Yeah. It's like, it's like they're already broken. And, and, and so I, I wrote that song because I realized that our churches are filled with people who have actual lives, Yeah, you know? And, and so that was my, that was my attempt to, to really to write a corporate worship song for the church, for people who are never going to be in ministry, who are never going to be on the stage leading worship, who are never going to be going to the conferences. You know, I, I honestly feel like the church over the last 50 or 60 years has been way over promising and under delivering. Oh, yeah with its faith practices or, you know, its systems of belief and how God relates to us via faith. And, yeah. and so honestly, that song in particular is really my, my attempt at a space maker for people. But there's poetically, there's a parallel or a, I'm not sure what the right word is, but there's secret miscarriage, miscarriage, whether if you think of it symbolically, something dying inside of you. Yeah. Yeah. secretly but then you flip it to saying public divorce so there's yeah. so why did you do that and what does that mean what is public divorce well i i i know for me specifically one of my main uh the the main things i feel in my life is shame like a sense of shame like and i and i know i know everybody feels this but like you put your head on your pillow at night and something something that you've done or said or something some some injury that you have caused that's been exposed uh, is like it, it's like a it's like a source of shame for in and even you know even when people get on their their healing journeys from some kind of you know I I, I have I have friends who have like like friends who have been like public individuals whether they were a pastor of a church or some other situation where there's been some kind of moral failure and some kind of, and just like, 
some kind of disclosure takes place, right? And I've, I've never had that kind of public fallout, but I've got my own secret issues in my life that I, that everybody has. This is not, you know, this is, nobody needs to get up and read their journal of diaries and vomit out on everybody to know what I'm talking about. Right. So I was just trying to find language where it's like, so often our worship language keeps the shameful out and and they're not really shameful but we just all have those twinges those pangs right we gave it more power than it actually had truly truly and so i'm just i want to talk about these things in a sense like like hey if if we can like if, if we can all acknowledge like you know when when Baptists run into, I keep picking on the Baptists. Sorry, I love. <laughs> they just it's this ongoing joke for me. But like low you know, hanging fruit. When the Baptist goes to the liquor store and runs into the deacon at the same liquor store, you know, it's like, can we just go ahead and say that everybody goes to the liquor store? You know, like I've got a funny story about that. So I have a, a friend that used to be in Boone, and he was um he was on staff at a Methodist church here, and um. Well, there's the joke that's like, what's the difference between a Baptist and a whatever, like Methodist? It's the Methodist yeah. will say hi to you at the liquor store. <laughs> the, but the, this this guy is Methodist, and he was at the liquor store, and someone that was in like a member of the church or parishioner or whatever. Yeah. And they saw each other at the liquor store, and the church member went, oh, I'm, I'm supposed to get something because <laughs> there's someone has a cold, and I'm supposed to make this mixture. And then he goes, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard of that. I'm just here to get vodka. <laughs> <laughs> and he and he was you know one of the pastors and i love that story because it's like we don't have to do this like yeah. obviously obviously we know that abusing things is bad it hurts our bodies it can make us make poor decisions all that stuff we get it we know truly yes but, uh, this part of life is sometimes i have a drink yeah and if that's something that can cause devastation in you and le- le- lead to addiction maybe you shouldn't be doing that but yes um it's just a thing and I don't want to, and I'm, and I'm in, in my attempt to disclose this stuff, I don't want to make light of divorce. I don't want to make light of, you know, loss of any sort, but I do believe that some of the shame associated with those things loses its power when we, when we make those things part of our, our hymnody, our hymns, our songs. That's so good to find out. Cause I didn't even think of I wasn't even thinking about people who had gone through a miscarriage or divorce. Mm. I was only thinking in the abstract of what the symbol. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Like this is my, the thing that has, here's my, my interpretation of, of that song. Yeah. <laughs> um, Cause you know, that's part of the process too, is the, uh, yeah. the audience, right? Yeah. The category I put you in can be very summed up in the, those lines. Something is in me has died and I'm not going to hide the fact that I don't like this. And wow. at the same time, I will not let go of you, God. That's, yeah. That's the, that's what I put you in. And actually I've pointed a lot of people to your music when they go, here's why I don't think I believe this stuff anymore. And here's yeah. what happened in my, the church I was at and here's the brokenness and here's the brokenness. Yeah. And, but there's something in me that just like, I, I can't be, I don't want to be done with who, whatever God is. Yeah. That's that's like okay, it's Andy Squire's song time because yes. 
Um, yeah. Andy has gone through pain, has seen loss, has experienced tremendous loss and heartache. Mm. And for whatever reason, he won't let go. Right. Uh, right. You know, it's just, even if he's just being drugged along, barely holding on, nothing's really in it for him anymore. Yeah. He just won't let go. And that's a, there's a lot, there are a lot of people in that category that I, I think I that they think the only thing left is to let go because mm. they mistakenly think if they let go of the system, they have let go of God mm. if, or if they let go of any particular theological point, some yeah. doctrine that they were taught. Yeah. There's a list of a hundred of them. If they let go, if one of them, they have just left God. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, at some point, it's, it can be really healing to publicly. That's why I've said, I thought of it as like more abstract to say, like, I'm going to say this out loud. I don't actually believe this thing anymore, or I don't, or more accurately for a lot of people, I don't know what I think of this anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's not a goodbye it, to God, but it might be a goodbye to that bullet point. And I'm, I still belong. Yeah. You know, it, I've said for years that I think religion at its worst tells people that they're not enough but at religion as its best reminds people that they are yeah and i think that you know that thing that you might have felt when you were younger like am i allowed to say this right it's like religion the 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 bad part of religion was saying no you're not good enough to say something special andy yeah but then the best part would be like yeah we need your voice yeah <clears throat> but we still need a collective narrative to continue here. Yeah. You know, and you know, we've had a, a decade or more of conversations about wrestling with some of these things, but I'm just, I'm picturing some of them in my mind. I'd walk around talking to you about things we're wrestling with. And so I guess a, a, from the perspective of songwriters, artists, creators of any kind, can you, can you talk about, Either, either how you write them or how you know when you've got one of them. Because I'm yeah. sure you've, you've written down some phrases and then you're like, that felt good at the time, but that's not really going to work. Yeah. Like, is it when you have your crew with you that you're like those people you were talking about, your other, other musicians and producers, is that when, or is it only here? Or? No, I, so, so I think writers who are, prolific and I wouldn't consider myself a prolific writer but my catalog is fairly big now and mm -hmm. it and it's it's it is now currently packed with with really good material hmm. I think and what happens is is that you, you are we good it froze for a I second again okay. yeah uh, so it, I, I I would just say that writers um writers who who are doing consistent work what what they what they I find what they end up doing is collecting a lot of material. And so so what I'll do is I'll go I'll go for a season of not writing on a regular basis, but I'll always be collecting. So so I am I'm kind of just you know, we have we have two acres of property that we're constantly working on. And so when I'm when I'm doing hard manual labor, I tend to be doing more 
I'm in my head more because my body's in motion. I'm doing hard labor and then my brain is free to think. And, and, and while I'm doing that, I find phrases. Uh-huh. And so when I find those phrases, I, I write them down. First, it's in my iPhone. And then I have, I have a series of organized notebooks that I keep stuff in. And so I kind of, I kind of gather a lot of, a lot of stuff. And then when I set down to write out an idea, I'll, I'll utilize all of those floating thoughts that I've, that I've collected over a season. And then, um, I can typically tell within a short matter of time, if a song is going to be really important or not, you know, and it, and it is always fascinating what, what stirs me up versus what stirs up a listening audience, you know? So, so for instance, over this last year, I released five singles. My favorite song of the five that I released was a song called River of Fire. And I had been reading, I had been reading some Eastern Orthodox theologians who, you know, like, like in the American evangelical imagination, that river of fire is like it's it's one of like it's the wrath of god it's it's like in our collective language it's it's even in like the battle hymn of Re- the republic we we sing about the return of the lord being wrathful and full of vengeance like that that scary angry jonathan edwards version of god is even in our nationalistic hymns right it's embedded and so I was reading these Eastern Orthodox theologians who were talking about that river of God being this river of fire, being this river of all-consuming love, you know? And so I started writing this song, and it just, it hit me like a ton of bricks. But, that, but that's my least, like, it's the least listened to single that I, that I released out in, in the world. So... I'm not always the best judge of what's going to be the most compelling to the listening audience. You yeah, know? it's the nature of art, I guess. It is. It really is. Kimberly has a, she taught me 20 years ago that about fire, just like, even if it hurts, of course we want things to burn away that don't belong anymore. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that's that's my relationship with with that that fire yeah. is like, and it's sort of like touching the nerve. It's I I know this is good. I know this is true. I'm not so sure I'm going to enjoy this, but ultimately I do want it to happen. Yeah. I want the underbrush to to burn away so that there can be healthier healthier soil. You know all that. Yeah. Um. Man. Yeah. There's just so much. I I just keep more and more of your lyrics just. And I keep popping up in my mind of, of that, not letting go thing. The the um, you bring the morning, mm. and maybe maybe we should wrap it up in a minute. But um, you you described it as a little bit more in the category of cherry blossoms. It's it's kind of more of the positive, hopeful. Yeah, and I get I get what you're saying, but I still it it's still in that genre to me of like I'm not gonna let go genre. Mm. Yeah. And the line that I always go back to for some reason, I mean, I love that song. I'll listen to it a hundred times, but the one that the line I go back to is you bring the new wine and I'll bring the drinking is the, is the one that I go back to because it's like, 
and my faith is, I think, similar to yours in that I'm like, I, I'm kind of done thinking that I'm supposed to somehow make the wine. Like, if you yeah. want to make it, I'll drink it, but I can't make anything anymore like this. Yeah. I can't, I can't magically make wonderful things, nor should I really have ever thought I could have, Yeah, you know, but I'm not done with you, but you're going to, you're going to have to, I can't make it with you. I can't pray it better so that it happens. If you want to make that wine, I will drink it. Yeah. And it's so it's like, I'm not done yeah. with God. But yeah. I am done thinking that I have some, I am supposed to pray better and say the magic formula better in order to be better. Like yeah. it's, it's so tired mm. and it's wounded so many. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, that that kind of stuff is healing for people. That kind of stuff is healing for people to hear. Uh, well, thanks man for, I mean, I just learned a lot, even though I'm not a musician, I still glean from that in terms of how I wanted yeah. to hear things artistically. Um, I, d- I definitely want to make sure that people go to your website to find your music, maybe buy, buy some of the music, buy some of the like shirts and other merch that you got. And then eventually to the point where they'll be able to go to, to a show, you know, things are, things are on hold yeah. for now in terms of shows, but I know that you do large shows, small shows, house shows. And um, so yeah. ma- everybody make sure they go to andysquires.com, but I'm going to spell it out because the uh, different people spell squires differently. It's A N D Y. S Q U Y R E S dot com. Did I do it right? That's it. Yeah. Andy Squires.com. Let's let's wrap it up with this. So I try to, you know, with the podcast, I say simplifying concepts without sacrificing yeah. depth. Narrow this down for us. Anybody's they're like, okay, I think I've learned some. This has been fun listening about songwriting. One little simple thing to give to somebody right now as we close that's let's say they're either a songwriter or they just like writing poetry in a journal or they're going to paint a painting and they're like, I want to touch a nerve. I want to create art that does that. Can you simplify that and tell us how to do that? Yes. Yes, I actually can (laughs) do it. So, so Jesus said it this way, know the truth and the truth will make you free. And how I apply that is I I am unafraid of telling my story and and I may not gather a large audience out of that attempt, but Jesus is not leading us to creating large audiences. He's leading us to creating truth so that people can be made free. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I've found is that when I tell the truth about myself, it makes other people able, it gives, it offers them grace to tell the truth about themselves in order to be made free. And I think that's what the best art does. We see it, we hear it, we touch it, we can even taste it in food. Food is art, can be art, right? But when we're telling the truth in those stories, that is where truth is is made is being made manifest and i think that's one of the primary uh indicators of or not an indicator but motivators Mm. of of the artist it's good man beautiful all right well thank you for your time man beautiful and uh like i said make sure that everybody goes to andy squires 
www.thingsaboutthings.com. And also, as always, you can go to thingsaboutthings.com for more things. Thanks for listening.